Well, good morning. If you have your copy of God's Word with you this morning, I would like to encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 14. That is where we'll be spending the next few moments in. And uh, before I get started, I want to pray. So let's pray. God, I thank you for this privilege, but also this great responsibility this morning. And Lord, I just ask that I will be faithful to your texts, knowing the reactions that it has caused in me and what it could do to the hearers. I pray all these things in your name. Amen. So, graduates, when I uh, graduated high school, I'm about to date myself, the cost of gasoline was $1.25. Oh, those days, right? However, now, when I was driving to Roxbury this morning, the, ca- the gas uh, price is $3.37. Furthermore, after I graduate, if I wanted to go see a movie ticket, it's $4.25. The going rate at Palace Point right now is $9. Do you notice the trend? As time passes, the cost of things increase. And we see this with just gas prices and movie tickets. However, in many churches in America, this is no longer the trend. I'm deeply troubled to read and hear about churches lowering their biblical standards. Some of these churches are more concerned with people's feelings and opinions than God's. They are no longer letting God's word guide them. Here are just a few examples of this trend. The ordination of women as pastors. 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter 2, clearly teach that the office of pastor is for a man. Furthermore, in some of these churches, mainline denominations, they are ordaining gay and lesbians into the office of pastor, which goes against the teaching of 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus 2. But by far the most troubling thing that has happened within this year, one of the top 10 largest megachurches in America, I won't say the pastor's name, But he's a well-known pastor, he's a well-read pastor, of a 23,000-member church, stood up on a Sunday morning from the pulpit and gave, uh, from the pulpit, condemning the wife of a man that was getting a divorce because her husband, her ex-husband, was having an affair with another man in the church. And he never called those two men to repentance against his sin. As troubling as these examples are to me and hopefully to you, my greatest concern for you graduates and for you church is that some have distorted the gospel message, what it means to be a Christian. They teach that being a Christian is nothing more than praying a prayer Get in dunked in the baptism and then come into church when you feel like it. But this morning, we're going to see three characteristics let me find, that Jesus declares his disciples must have according to Luke chapter 14. And I'm going to start reading in verse 25. So with your copy of God's word, please follow along as I read. Starting in verse 25, it says this. Now great crowds accompanied him, 
And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, before we dive into this text, I need to define what a disciple is. And the best way to understand words in the Bible is to see what other scriptures say about that Bible, that word. So in Acts chapter 6 and also Acts chapter 11, this is what a disciple is. A disciple is a Christian. It's a synonym for a Christian. Since the earliest days of the New Testament church, if you called yourself a Christian... You were a disciple. If you called yourself a disciple, then you were a Christian. So this is the biblical standard. So what Jesus is saying here is, if anyone wants to come to me and be a Christian, they must hate. Da, 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 da. Jesus is saying that a Christian's relationship with him should control, should guide, should direct their life more than their families. A Christian's commitment to Christ is more important than their family commitments. Christ's desires for a Christian are to be more important than the desires for your families and friends. Now, let me clarify what Christ isn't saying. He's not saying that he hates families. Jesus is God. He's not against families. He's the one that created families. We find that throughout the Bible. But Jesus is a jealous God. And he commands that a Christian, a disciple, worship him first and foremost. In Mark chapter 12, verse 30, Jesus says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, Verses 7 through 10, it says this, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carbon image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the sins of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands who love me and keep my commandments. Christians have this idea that you should love your family and then you should love God. But the truth is, is this, and as I found in our marriage, the more I love Jesus, the more I spend with him, the better husband I am. The better son I am, the better brother I am, the better uncle I am. And I promise you, graduates and church, if you love Christ most and first, you will have a better marriage. You will have a better life because these are his words. Now, these are tough words. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, when Megan and I were getting ready to get married, I remember overhearing a conversation my dad had with her parents. And my dad said, you know... We love them, and we want the best for them. But we've came to the conclusion that 
if God's will is for them to live 10 hours away from us, that we're happy. That's what we want. Even though we desire them to be 10 minutes away, we want them to be in God's will. Now, for you, though, graduates, it might not be moving away from Roxborough or church, but it could be. Maybe you go to a different church or maybe you choose to raise your family or live your life a different way than the culture. Loving Christ will change how you do. Examine your life, graduates and church family. Does your love for God and his kingdom take precedence over every other human relationship? Parents, are you raising your children to love Christ? First and foremost, graduates, church, do you value God's word more than your families? Is Christ Lord of your life or is something else ruling it? Jesus clearly teaches that he cannot be your savior without also being your Lord. The second characteristic of a disciple, according to Luke chapter 14, is a willingness to sacrifice their will for Christ's will. Uh, I'm going to read verse 27 now. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Well, what Jesus is saying right now is not saying go kill yourself. The cross was an instrument of death. But what he is saying is to sacrifice your values, my values, and desires for his values and desires. The Christian life should be marked by daily living for God's word. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, anyone wants to be my disciple, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. It's not a one-time deal. A disciple, a Christian, is someone that is daily denying their wants and desires for Christ. So whose will are you doing, church and graduates? Are you making much of Jesus or much of yourself? Are you living for your kingdom or are you living for his kingdom? Parents and adults, whose kingdom do the students and the children in this church see you living for? Yours or Christ? Students and children... Whose kingdom do your friends and your classmates and your siblings see you living for? The third characteristic of a disciple, according to Luke chapter 14, is this. A disciple is one who considers the cost of following Jesus, then surrenders all to Christ. Uh, Follow along with me as I read uh, verses 28 through 33. Sorry, 20, yeah, 28 through 33. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the costs, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and he is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man begun to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliver? Deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, why the others 
is yet still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Listen to this verse, 33 says, So therefore, anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Becoming a Christian, according to the word of God, should not be a fast, rush, speedy decision. It is one that you should think about. This idea you pray a prayer, and then you're saved from hell, and you can live your life however you want to, is not in the Bible. Furthermore, that sinner's prayer is not in the Bible. Being a Christian costs a lot. That is an example we see throughout the book of Acts. People losing their lives, losing their livelihood. Friends and family abandoning them. So graduates, don't rush in. Think long and hard if you aren't a Christian, if you aren't a disciple of Christ, or what it's going to cost you. Because it will cost you your friends. It might cost you the career that you want to go into. It might change the direction of your schooling, but it's worth it. I promise you it is. The two illustrations Jesus tells the crowd clearly teaches that his disciples must first count the cost and understand how much it will cost to be his disciple. The essence of being a disciple of Christ is having an unreserved commitment to him. This involves holding loosely to the material things of this world. To be Jesus' disciple, one must lay down their devotions to this world and live for Christ and his mission. Jesus teaches that being a disciple involves giving your full and complete life to him. The cost of the cross costs Jesus his very life. In John chapter 1, verse 29, it says this, The next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. A lamb was sacrificed in the Old Testament and in the New Testament for sins. John the Baptist is saying, this is the one whose life will give us freedom from sin. In Isaiah 53, verse 5, it says this, talking about Jesus. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. And by his wounds... We are healed. Why would Christ, who gave his life for us, ask less of, a, less of us? Why shouldn't we give our lives to the one who gave his life for us? Graduates in church, Jesus doesn't want a crowd of fans. He doesn't want or need you cheering him on. He doesn't ask for spectators or bystanders or onlookers. He wants disciples. Jesus taught that dying to oneself is the first step for following him. Does your life, graduates, students, church, give evidence of you following Christ? Has the love of Christ caused you to do some radical things? Does Jesus in his word rule and transform your life 
from the inside out. Graduates and students and church family, I fear that some of you are like the religious leaders known as the Sadducees. Their faith was something that they were born into. It was never really something they chose. Maybe when you were born, your parents handed you a mask, and you grew up acting like Christians act, taking, talking how Christians talk, listening to music Christians listen to, but you never fell in love with Jesus. Your faith has always been more about honoring your heritage than surrendering your life. Parents, adults, and church members, the author of the book, Not a Fan, shares the following story that I think is an appropriate way to conclude. A few months ago, I was speaking in Houston, Texas, and a good-sized man with a good-sized belt buckle came up to me with tears in his eyes. He began to tell me the story of his prodigal daughter, how she went to college and totally turned her back on the faith. As soon as he started the story, I knew how it would go. I've heard it so many times. Even the details seem predictable. But when he finished, he didn't ask me why she was doing this or what had gone wrong. He wasn't looking for an explanation. Instead, with one sentence, he put his finger on what he thought happened. And here's what he said. We raised her in church, but we didn't raise her in Christ. You hear what he's saying? We raised her in church, but we didn't raise her in Christ. We raised her to look right on the outside, but didn't teach her about the inside. We taught her to keep all the rules, but never really had a, never really having a relationship. We made her feel guilty for the wrong things she did, but somehow we missed God's amazing grace. We taught her to be a fan of Jesus instead of a follower of Jesus. Graduates, church, students, are you a fan of Christ or are you his disciple? Let's pray. God, I thank you for this word. Lord, it is very difficult and it's tough to understand. But I ask, Lord, that we would live our lives according to the truth that is in your scriptures. And, Lord, if there is one here this morning that has not came to faith and repentance and is not a disciple of yours, I ask, Father, that these words would work in their hearts and that your will would be done. I ask all these things in your name. Amen. Thank you, Lee, for those powerful, powerful words. Look, I'm going to be just a little bit lighter. Um, hope you don't mind that, and I'll not be very long. Don't you wish somebody could just explain life to you so that you could understand it? Well, got an email this week that explains life, and if it's an email, I know it's got to be true, okay? So let me read it to you, okay, in case you hadn't read this. On the first day, God created the dog and said, Sit all day by the door of your house and bark at anyone who comes in or walks past. For this, I will give you a lifespan of 20 years. The dog said, That's a long time to be barking. How about 10 years, and I'll give you back the other 10? So God agreed. On the second day, God created a monkey and said, Entertain people, do tricks, make them laugh. For this, I'll give you a 20-year lifespan. 
The monkey said, tricks for 20 years, that's a pretty long time to perform. How about I give you back 10 years like the dog did? So God agreed. On the third day, God created the cow and said, you must go into the field with the farmer all day long, suffer under the sun, have calves and give milk to support the farmer's family. For this, I will give you a lifespan of 60 years. The cow said, that's kind of a tough life. You want me to live for 60 years? How about 20 years and I'll give back the other 40? And so God agreed again. On the fourth day, God created humans and said, eat, sleep, play, marry, and enjoy your life. For this, I'll give you 20 years. But the human said, only 20 years. Could you possibly give me my 20? The 40, the cow gave back. The 10, the monkey gave back. And the 10, the dog gave back. And that will make my lifespan 80 years. So this is why for our first 20 years, we eat, sleep, play, and enjoy ourselves. For the next 40, we slave in the sun to support our family. For the next 10, we do monkey tricks to entertain the grandchildren. And for the last 10, we sit on the front porch and bark at everyone who comes by. Life has now been explained to you, okay? Look, we love you guys. We want you to know as you graduate that we're very, very proud of you and your accomplishments, and we pray that many, many more are ahead of you. Uh, I just want to give some words of encouragement, and um, hopefully I'm going to give you some scripture to go with each one of these. And some of these be repetitious of what Leah said. First of all, I encourage you to receive and live in the love that Jesus has for each one of you. In Revelation 3, verse 20, uh, there's a very beautiful picture that is painted. Uh, John writes, Behold, this Jesus is speaking. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and let him in or, and, and eat with him and he with me. Jesus is going to invite you throughout your life to live in his love and fellowship and presence. And I pray that you'll say yes to that invitation. A painter drew a picture of that. And I'm told that on the outside, there's not a doorknob. In other words, the door can only be opened from the inside. Jesus is not going to be able to work in your life until you freely and openly invite him in. I pray you'll do that. Secondly, in each area of your life, I ask and encourage you to seek the Lord and his guidance. There's a whole lot of ways that God's going to give you guidance, the scripture. And I remind you that in a world that does not believe that the Bible is the word of God, Jesus said this in John 17:14, thy word is truth. The word of God is truth. Learn how to pray if you don't already know, and that's simply communicating with God. Please be a part of worship somewhere. And please surround yourself with godly friends, including your parents. Seek God's guidance in every area of your life, your education, your occupation, and most especially your marriage. Number three, expect to make mistakes. Now, some of us feel like we don't make mistakes, but we do because the Scripture says all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You're going to make mistakes in life. Get back up. Grab the hand of the Lord. Keep going forward. Number four, forgive yourselves and others. And there will be some times when you're going to be like the man on the V8 commercial. You're going to hit yourself on the head and think, well, why did I do that? Why did I make that decision? Forgive yourself 
and forgive others. In Ephesians 4.32, Paul says, Forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Number five, don't base your life on gathering stuff. Matthew 6.19-21, Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consumes and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Number six, give yourselves away. Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Give yourselves away, your time, your talents, your love, and even your material blessings. Think back on the many people who have given themselves to you. Begin a lifetime of giving to others. Become an impact on somebody else's life by giving yourself to them. Number seven, learn to save money and use credit wisely. And you might not think this has any place in your graduating, but it truly does. Proverbs 22.7 says the borrower is the slave to the lender. Satan wants you to get so deeply in debt. Now, there's going to be a lot of debt you need to get in. If you go on to school, you're going to have to borrow money. Everybody does, unless you've got uh, Donald Trump as your parents. And I know all of your parents, and I don't think he's your parent. Learn how to save money. Learn how to use credit wisely. Number eight, live life to the fullest. I'm sure that probably most of you have seen that movie, Facing the Giants. I love what the coach says to the players at the championship game. Don't bring anything back to the bench. Leave it on the field. Your life is a field that God has given you. Give everything you can in serving him. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever your task, work heartily as serving the Lord and not men. Number nine, keep your commitments. Keep your commitment to the Lord. If you go on to school to higher education, keep your commitment to marriage, to your job. If you have children, be committed to them and even be committed to your parents. Many, many decades ago, when I graduated from high school, the preacher at my home church said this, a quitter never wins and a winner never quits. Don't be a quitter. And number 10, Keep looking up. Keep looking up. Human history is headed toward a planned destination. And you know what that is? Jesus Christ is going to come back again. Jesus is alive. He is well. He is still working in and through people's lives. He is still saving people from their sin, loving them, blessing them. And thank God, I hope you make a positive contribution to this world but Jesus is coming again. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Would you guys mind coming and standing at the altar one last time? And I'm going to get you to face the congregation. And we want to say a prayer for you. And after the closing prayer, uh, if you'll come by and shake their hands and just encourage them. Thank you all for being here, for family that are here. Let's pray together. Father, today we are grateful for each one of these high school graduates. Lord, I thank you and I pray your blessings upon Travis and Taylor and Tyler and Dee and Hannah and Chris and Daniel and Skylar and Jessica and Dylan 
and Taylor and Kaylee and Mackenzie and Rebecca. Lord, I thank you that as we gather here in this sanctuary, first of all, that they are your creation. Remind them throughout the years ahead that you have a special plan for each of them, and I pray that they'll know and experience that plan. Lord, may they ever be thankful for the homes and for the parents that you gave them to raise them that are here even right now. Many others who have been a part of their life and who have given themselves away to them. And I pray, Father, that you'll help them to know that you want them to give themselves away too. Father, bless them, watch over them. When they make mistakes, Lord, I pray that you'll be so close to them. Lord, I thank you that there's not going to be a moment that these graduates live that you'll not be there with them. So we just pray, Lord, that you'll bless their lives, guide and direct them as many go off to school, many go to work. Whatever's before them in the future, may they know that you'll be there with them. And thank you again, Father, for each one. All these prayers we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.